All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Richard, can you open us in a word of prayer? So we are continuing lesson two of our Understanding Biblical Doctrine series. Uh, And this is looking at the nature or the essence of God. And last week we covered that God is a pure spirit. And we looked at some uh, verses pertaining to that. We looked at God is a personal being. And some verses related to that. And then we began to speak on God as a triune being, the Trinitarian nature of God. Um, We began to look at various verses in the Old Testament which speak to the Trinitarian nature of God. And we're we're seeing, uh, hopefully, that as Scripture progresses forward that more and more of the Trinitarian nature of God is revealed to us. So we began in Genesis 1 uh, where God said, um, let there be light. Uh, there, There was God the Father, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and then the spoken word through which things were created, which is the Son. Um, And then the statement of let us make man in our image, looking at that plural there. Um, God, singular being, speaking in the plural. And then we moved on and we, we looked at the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and particularly looking at uh, Jacob's interaction with the angel of the Lord at Peniel. And then that is where we left off last time. We're going to continue looking at the Trinitarian nature of God as revealed in Scripture. And hopefully you'll see um, more and more of that Trinitarian nature revealed as we move on in looking at these verses. So the first passage, uh, we're, we're now turning to look at the plurality of God's being in the Psalms. So the Trinitarian nature of God as revealed in the Psalms. Um, and we're really only going to look at two different Psalms, two of, of the most familiar Psalms to us, and two of the most explicit in uh, teaching the Trinitarian nature of God, and particularly the unique personhood of the Son of God. Uh, So, it says to read Psalm 2 and verses 2, 7, and 12. I think we should just read the whole psalm. Uh, So... Can I get someone to read Psalm 2? The whole thing? Yeah. Okay. Like the nation of rage, and the people plot a thing thing, the kings of the earth set themselves against him, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them from derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a lot of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and he perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled by the little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. All right, so looking at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, who, what two persons are mentioned here in this passage? Yeah, and what are the, what are the names that are used of them in verse 2? Yeah. So we have the Lord and his anointed, which, as Richard said, is, is speaking of the Father and the Son. Um, notice there, and I would assume all of your Bible translations, but maybe not. Uh, Lord there is in all capital letters. That is the divine name, the tetra, uh, uh, the. Uh, the name of God that he revealed to Moses uh, at Mount Sinai. Um, and that, that name which we uh, transliterate into English is Jehovah. Uh, so we, we see the distinction there. And that distinction is going to be important as we continue on looking in our, in our study today. So we see uh, Jehovah and his anointed, uh, which, as Richard said, speaks to the Father and to the Son. Um, what relationship is presented in verse 7? We already kind of mentioned this. Verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. So the relationship there is the relationship of the Father and the Son. Um, I don't know how much more explicit Scripture could be there. Um, in speaking of the two persons here mentioned, um, and highlighting that relationship of father and son. I mean, this, this verse is about as explicit as it can be. Um, and then the fact that if you look forward in Scripture where this verse is later used as well by Jehovah, where is that? Where else do we see, um, thou art my son, this day I have I begotten thee? Or, or something very close to that. You can say it out loud, Liz. Yes. Yeah, we see it where, where the heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon uh, Christ as a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven says, uh, this is my beloved Son. Uh, and so we know from looking at the New Testament and and. Don't let people tell you you can't do this. We are New Testament Christians. We have been given the entirety of the Scripture. We can interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, and we should. Uh, so, given what we're given in Christ's baptism, and then the explicit nature of the relationship that's shown here, I find it impossible to read Psalm 2 and come away saying, yeah, that, that 
that sounds like it's pointing towards Christ, but that's not really Christ. It's speaking of someone else. It's speaking of David or it's speaking of another king or something like that. I don't understand how certain scholars can make those claims. Um, maybe you can help me understand this, but it seems like nonsense to me. Um, and outright just disbelief. No, no assistance in helping me understand that. No, I agree with you. Okay, good, good. Our, there, there are people that will teach that. Yeah. 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 Of course, we're gonna we're gonna see heretics that would say, you know, this can't be about Jesus because this is before Jesus. Or, you know, Mormons would say that this might be about Jesus because, yeah, he's God's son, but he was a pre-create or a a, a pre-existing created being prior to coming to earth. Uh, so they may try to weasel their way around it. But I've heard self-professed Christians say, you know, if we're going to rightly interpret this psalm, we can't read Christ into it. That we have to read it as it was written in, you know, whatever time frame BC it was written and we would have to receive it in the way that the original audience would have received it. And I think that's absurd. Um, I think it's absurd to say that the original audience wouldn't know that this is talking about their Messiah that was to come. There is a reason that the Pharisees um, were expecting a kingly uh, Messiah. There was a reason that Jews were expecting Christ to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish his kingdom on earth. Um, and this is one of the reasons why. Um, because even the Jews understood this was a messianic psalm. Um, now they may not have, you know, you wouldn't have heard any of them say, this is speaking of Jesus who's going to come 3,000 years from now or whatever. But they would say this speaks of our Messiah. So we ought to rightly understand Psalm 2 by reading the, the New Testament into it because we are given the full revelation of God. Uh, verse 12, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they, or blessed are all they that put their trust in him. What does it mean to kiss the sun? Yeah, it's it's a sign of submission and in stooping yourself low. Um, and as as Richard said, it is it is a sign of homage, uh, which is paid to the king. Um, and so, when when taking those images together and understanding that the Son is Christ. What is the call upon uh, kings and judges to kiss the sun? What, what does that mean for civil magistrates? 
It means that they're under the authority of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that he is the king. King of kings. Lord of lords. So yep. they, they bow their knee to Christ. That's what they're asked to do. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, the call on magistrates is to kiss the sun, meaning that heads of nations are to bend the knee in submission, as Matt said, and to pay their homage to the King of Kings, as Richard said. And we'll we'll speak of this uh, later in our study when we get to probably uh, lessons 17 and 18 of the workbook. Um, if it doesn't cover it in detail, then I will make sure to cover it. Um, this is what we understand as the uh, magistrate's duty in recognizing the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Um, that Christ, as mediatorial king is given dominion over all the earth um, and that nations and their heads are to bow in submission and to pay their homage unto him. Um, and so this is what, uh, this is one of the defining doctrines of our denomination uh, where we believe as we're seeing here in this text, that we ought to call upon the magistrate to fulfill their obligation to kiss the sun. Um, I pray that, if not every week, then almost every week, that we would see the magistrates repent and place their trust in Christ and rule according to his precepts. Um, that's what's meant by kings and judges are to kiss the sun. Now, I think it's interesting. Richard brought up something, and I'm glad he did, uh, because when he brought it up, it meant I didn't have to, um, that the Pope um, is one of the most modern images that we have of people doing this. And... That is yet another example of the Pope setting himself in the place of Christ. The seat of kingship over the nations is the seat of Christ. It is Christ who princes and governors are to submit to. It is Christ who kings and judges are to bend their knee in submission and kiss. And yet, if if you ever seen if you ever seen videos of the Pope going to an official diplomatic uh, meeting, so if you didn't know, the Pope is not only supposedly the head of the Church for uh, the Papists, he is also a civil magistrate. He is essentially the king of the smallest country in the world, Vatican City. And so he makes diplomatic uh, visits to nations just as our president does. Um, but his diplomatic visits take on a twofold approach. They are both diplomatic and religious in their uh, purpose. And if you've ever seen videos of the Pope going to visit other state leaders, you will see other state leaders bend, bow, and kiss the Pope. So when we, when we think about this, how is that not the Pope setting himself in the stead of Christ? Is he not taking upon himself the honor and the, and the majesty, the homage of uh, civil governors? Is he not taking that upon himself when it only belongs to Christ? Yes. Um, 
I don't know if this workbook gets into the Antichrist. I'm going to get into it because this needs to be said. When we think about the Antichrist, the Antichrist, that term, Antichristos in Greek, is made up of, of a, it's a, it's a contraction. It's made up of a prefix and then a root. Anti and Christ. And you may think to yourself, anti, yeah, that means anti, against. And so, you know, Antichrist is against Christ. But the Greek word anti doesn't just mean against. It also means in the place of. And it is the one who stands in the place of Christ who is the Antichrist. How much more proof do we need that the Pope is the Antichrist than the fact that he sets himself up in the ecclesiastical and regnal offices of Christ and demands of himself the homage and submission of civil magistrates that belongs only to Christ. This is yet another example of that truth and another reason why we should have no uh, union, no part with Rome because the Pope is setting himself up in the place of Christ. So, apologize for my tangent there. I, just, I, I felt it was necessary when we're looking at this passage. Yes, sir. There's many Christian faiths that get off onto the eschatology and are all concerned about the Antichrist. That he will make, that there is a special Antichrist, one who will stand and do all sorts of wicked evil. Um, that's not the interpretation that, is, that we have. We're not waiting for the Antichrist to bring an end to ages. The Antichrist has been with us for a long time. Um, and one of them is the Pope. It's not the only one. There are others that do the same thing. It's the other way of Christ. And instead, cult leaders can fit that same pattern. So there's a so we're not out looking for who's going to be. Was it Adolf Hitler? Was it another Hitler-like person? Well, yeah, he, 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 he was pretty bad. But some of his cult leaders and so forth were pretty bad too. Yeah. What's going on in Rome is just, just mm -hmm. Yeah, and to elaborate on that, uh, if you read the letter of 1 John, you, you see what Bob's talking about. Uh, John says that the spirit of Antichrist has gone out. So there are those who have the spirit of Antichrist. Then he says that there are many Antichrists among you. Uh, so we know that there are many Antichrists throughout history, and there were even Antichrists um, within uh, first century uh, Middle East. And then there's the there's mention of the Antichrist, um, which ties into Paul's teaching on the man of sin, the son of perdition. Um, and when we look at when we look at that in the teaching on the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, and, and the, the collective teaching of both John and Paul on that matter and we survey that, um, we see that it, it very clearly uh, points to not the Pope, as in Pope Francis. Pope Francis is not, you know, the Antichrist like what we see in Left Behind books. He's not that one singular person who's going to come in and usher the end of the age. When we say the Pope is the Antichrist, we're not talking about one specific person, but the office. The office has set itself up in the stead of Christ. Um, you know, Lord willing, maybe in the future we'll do a more in-depth study into 
eschatology. But what Bob was saying there is true. You know, we have to we have to understand uh, that there are many antichrists. Uh, you think of someone like Jim Jones, who set himself up in the place of Christ, uh, made himself a Messiah figure, and he was an antichrist. Uh, so. We need to keep that in mind. So thank you, Bob, for making mention of that. Yeah, so like I said, I would love to do a more in-depth study on that. Maybe, maybe that can come through, you know, an afternoon Bible study through uh, Revelation or... or Second Thessalonians, something like that. Uh, so let's still looking at verse 12. Um, so we've looked at that first part, kiss the sun. Now we're looking at the last part. Uh, and it says, uh, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So in whom are we to put our trust? Who is the him in this passage? We talked about pronouns and antecedents last week. Pronoun him, what is the antecedent? What does that pronoun point back towards? Son, Christ, um, and so, the Son in this passage, we're told to put our trust in Him. Does Scripture ever command that we are to put our trust in anyone who is less than wholly divine? No. What does Psalm 146 say? You know, if you don't know off the top of your head. Um, Psalm 146 says uh, to not put your trust in earthly princes uh, or mortal men who cannot save. Um, That we are to only put our trust in God alone. Um, was Christ Jesus a mortal man? Yes, he took on human flesh, was a mortal man. That's why he was able to die. Is he a mortal man who cannot save? Is he merely a mortal man? No. He is both a mortal man who has been raised into immortality, and he is holy, divine. He is both God and man. And so when we're looking at this, this further confirms that the Son spoken of here is God, uh, that we are speaking of Christ because we are told to put our trust in Him. And that is only said of Christ, of of God. Uh, Any questions concerning Psalm 2? Before we move on to Psalm 110. All right. Uh, Let's move on to 110. And let me get a volunteer to read Psalm 110. Shall judge among the heathen, he 
shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Uh, this is probably the most familiar psalm to many of us. It is uh, the most extensively quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, It's actually the psalm that I wrote a small exegesis paper on when I was at seminary in Birmingham. Um, And so it's a very popular psalm, and it says a lot in it. And it is one of the most clearly messianic psalms um, where we know that this is speaking of Christ. So looking at verse 1, remember we're looking at the, the plurality of God in the psalms. So the triunity, the trinitarian nature of God and specifically looking at uh, examples of the Son in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. So looking at verse 1, most if not all of your Bible translations will say, The Lord said unto my Lord. And if you notice, the first Lord is all capitals. The second Lord is only... uh, First letter capitalized. Does anyone know why that is? The one in all capital letters is what would call Jehovah. The other one, I guess, is the difference. Yeah, so. Anytime in your Bible in the Old Testament, and this is only in the Old Testament because. In the New Testament, they use the same word, whether speaking of of God or uh, Lord. Um, in the New Testament, they just simply use the word kurios. Um, but here in the Old Testament, there is a differentiation made. Um, the first one, Lord, as Richard said, is Jehovah. The second one, Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Adonai. Um, And so what we see in the Hebrew of this passage is Jehovah said unto Adonai. Um, And when you see it in that way, um, when you see it as the Hebrew is written, then it's very clear that we have two people speak, uh, two people present in this passage, right? You have Jehovah and you have Adonai. Um, the way that our English renders it, when reading it, it comes across very easily as well. You see capital Lord, you know that is Jehovah. You see lowercase Lord, you know that is Adonai. And so you can still, even just reading it, see that there is two distinct people present. The difficulty comes in reading aloud the English. I can't, I can't really make the differentiation between Lord and Lord in saying, the Lord said unto my Lord. And so audibly, there can be confusion. Um, But notice that there are two people here. Two people mentioned. You have Jehovah, you have Adonai. Um, Who is Jehovah? Now, keep in mind, Jehovah is a title, it is the name, the divine name of God as a person, as a being. God as a being is Jehovah. So, are we speaking of God as a triune being here? 
Is that who is speaking? Who, who's speaking here, taking on the divine name of Jehovah? God the Father. Okay, so we have God the Father under the name Jehovah speaking to Adonai. Who is Adonai? It is the Son. Um, it could be argued in this first verse that it is the King, King David, for example. God is speaking to him. But it's, you get down to the, he's in the order of Melchizedek. A strange person, Melchizedek, messes up that type of interpretation. Mm -hmm. So it reinforces the fact that this is Christ. Yeah, and that kind of gets into the next question in verse 4. What has God promised that is true of Jesus Christ? And you made mention of it, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and that does put a wrench in the theory that this is speaking of just a king. Um, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because he was writing the psalm, the term my Lord was a term of like that you would use to refer to a king. Mm -hmm. So that's how he related to Jesus, not uh, God the Son. Yeah. Like that's how I heard it right? Yeah. Yeah. So David is recognizing his state of humiliation in the presence of King Jesus. He is recognizing, yes, I am the king here on earth, but there is a heavenly king above me, and I will call him my Lord. Uh, and, and Jews, historically, have had a lot of difficulty with this psalm because of that. How can David, who is the greatest king that Israel has ever had, refer to someone as his Lord. They, they have no problem with Jehovah. They understand you know, the divine name being there. Their issue is how can David speak of someone being his Lord, having that submission to someone else when he is the, the highest authority on earth uh, as far as magist magisterial authority goes. And Jews have a hard time answering that um, historically that has been one of the greatest issues in their understanding of the psalm um, and Jews today uh, who are more influenced by liberalism just like their Christian theologians influenced by liberalism the Jewish theologians today have sought to reconcile this by saying that David is speaking of uh, a, a king, a king that would come in his lineage, and so he was recognizing that because the promise was given to him that his descendants would sit on the throne, that. He's submitting to a future kingly person, but it's not Jesus. That's what they'll say. So, like, they're, they're almost there. They're almost there. And then they just deny it. it, it it's, a, it's absurd. Um, the only way to reconcile David saying, my Lord, is to understand that this is speaking about Christ. And when you bring in that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, well, like I said, we're New Testament Christians. We interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. Hebrews uh, all over. I'm not even going to talk about what it, what, what it mentions here in the workbook. All of Hebrews. In fact, you could argue that, you know, from Hebrews 5 to 8, 
is all one giant defense of Christ being the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so when we have what I think is the most extensive Holy Spirit inspired exposition of Psalm 110 in Hebrews, then we must understand that this is speaking of Christ. No doubt whatsoever. Any? So when he calls him Lord, he's also referring to his, his divinity as well. Yeah, so there, there, is a, there is a twofold usage of Lord. Um, so you'll see throughout the Old Testament that people will refer to kings as lords. Uh, but when we're, when we're looking at Christ, yes, Lord is a, Lord is a magisterial title. It is given to regnants. Um, and so we're, we're, it's primarily speaking of Christ's authority, his kingship over David. But we also understand through the light of the New Testament, the use of Kyrios there speaks of both, can speak of both the, the kingly aspect of it and the divine aspect of it. And so we can understand this as David is recognizing that. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of uh, you know, Christ answering these verses. I mean, he asked the, the Pharisees, or the Jews, how can, how can uh, David call him Lord when he's his son? Mm-hmm. So, I, so is, is that more referring to his divinity in that regard? Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 it is speaking of both. So when you're, when you're thinking about the kingly office in the Old Testament, forget your modern notion of monarchy, but in the, in the Old Testament, the son does not supersede the father, especially as he's sitting on his throne. Uh, and yet here we see the son superseding the king. And so the question is, how can David say, my Lord, when it is the son? And the answer is, because this is the son of David who was to come. So there's that aspect of it, the lineage of it, who was currently, even before his coming, to the earth, reigning over David, which can only be done by someone who's divine. And so, yes, to answer your question, it is speaking of his divinity in in his acting in his kingly office. Does that make sense? Any other questions? All right. We can finish this page. I think so. I'm not getting my hopes up, though. Um, so, moving on. Unless there's any, any other comments or questions of Psalm 110, we move on to the New Testament. And that, just, just remember, that's a very small um, example of the Trinitarian nature of God in the Old Testament. You know, there were bits and pieces that were shown, but we only looked at, you know, less than 10 verse or 10 passages. You can look all throughout the Old Testament and you can see the Trinitarian nature of God. Um, so that was just a small sampling of it. And we're going to see a small sampling of it in the New Testament as well. Um, so looking at number two, the Trinity, the Trinity is revealed by deed in the New Testament. And I'm going to make, 
uh, I'm going to take issue with this statement here. The statement is, the writers of the New Testament did not write theological defenses of the Trinity. They simply recorded those acts that indicate the existence and equal authority of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I'm going to take issue with that. Um, it, if you're looking for a theological defense like Paul... Uh, giving a theological defense of justification by faith alone, you're not going to find that in the New Testament. You know, you'll, you can find that theological defense for justification by faith alone in the New Testament. You can't find that type of theological defense, that extensive theological defense for the Trinity in the New Testament. But... I would argue that 1 John 5, 7 is a theological defense of the Trinitarian nature of God. Albeit a very succinct one. Very succinct. Still a theological defense. Uh, but we covered that already in our teaching just keep in mind, uh, there are some people who do not receive that as the Word of God. And either in the writing of this workbook or in, in the editing of it, that was, was left out. Um, so just keep that in mind. That is why. So we're going to deal with what is primarily seen of the Trinitarian nature of God in the New Testament, which is indeed. And we're going to look at these very quickly um, because I don't want us to be too late starting our worship service. Uh, so looking at the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, we've already made mention of this when we looked at Psalm 2 where uh, Jehovah says, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And then we made mention of Matthew chapter 3 when Christ is being baptized. Here we see the heavens opening, the Spirit descending as a dove, the Son obviously being present, uh, in his baptism and then being confirmed as the son through the voice of the father who declares, this is my son. This is my beloved son. And so that is very clearly an example of um, a narrative portion of scripture, which displays the Trinitarian nature of God. We have the spirit, the son and the father. Uh, looking at Matthew 28 and verse 19, at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, this is the Great Commission, and we see that baptism is to be administered in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And here we see all three members of the Trinity mentioned and here in this note in your workbook, and I've made mention of it before, note the fact that there is one name. It is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That singular name. And that singular name indicates the equality of authority in the persons involved as well as the oneness of the three persons of the Godhead. And so uh, here we see that all three persons are mentioned and are given the singular name. Uh, name. It is by their singular name that we are to be baptized in. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What is that singular name that is given in Scripture that encompasses 
all three persons of the Trinity. Just mentioned it earlier. We have Trinity. Well, look, think back to Psalm 110, that singular name that the Father takes on himself in Psalm 110. What is that name, the divine name of God? Lord, Jehovah. Um, and so that is what is being referenced here. And it speaks to the equal authority, the equal power of the three members of the Godhead. And it also speaks to the unity of the three persons of the Godhead, that they are of one essence. They have one divine name, that of Jehovah. And then uh, looking at the ministry of the apostles, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is actually our benediction for this morning. So very interesting when that stuff lines up. Uh, someone read for me first, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. The second epistle the Corinthians. <laughs> second epistle of the Corinthians written in Philippi, the city of Macedonia, and the There you go. Uh oh. So we have, we have the three persons of the Trinity all mentioned as being the one who brings about the blessing upon the people. Uh, that it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes with you. It is the love of God the Father that goes with you. And it is the communion of the Holy Ghost that is with you. Um, and so Paul calls upon all three persons of the Godhead to bless those within Christ church, um, to bless Christians. And so there we see yet another example of the Trinitarian nature of God displayed in, in the New Testament. Any final questions or comments? We'll finish up this lesson next week. None? All right. Uh, Matt, can you close us in prayer?